Hello, welcome back to the Coaches Rising podcast. In this podcast, we're going to be exploring a topic which I think is really important and it's going to only become more important. And that's the topic of grief. We'll be looking at grief through a coaching lens. I think it's a topic that doesn't get much space in coaching, as you'll hear from Dina Bell LaRoche, who's the guest on today's podcast. But it's such a common human experience. And as I said, I think it's going to only become more relevant as we move into a time, and this is just my feeling or my sense of it, that we're going to be experiencing more loss, like there's a potential for for more loss coming in the next years. So in today's conversation, we're going to be exploring grief from different angles, such as loss, which can occur from a loss of identity as we're moving through a transformational process. And we'll also talk about the loss of loved ones. And so we'll talk about how can we support people experiencing loss and grief? What are some of the common mistakes with the way we hold it? And what practices can support us to be with grief? And I mentioned Dina Bella Rush. She's the guest on today's podcast. You know, I really felt Dina's transmission of this work. You'll hear me mention it as we move into the podcast. I could feel her, her depth of work she's done around this topic of grief. Dina is the founder of Grief Unleashed. She's a certified coach with Integral Coaching Canada. She's worked in the field of high-performance sports since 1991 and been to Olympics and worked with athletes. And since 2010, she's been working alongside a team at Sport Law who are deeply devoted to shifting the consciousness of humanity through their work in sport. And there's some great resources on grief on her website, which is griefunleashed.ca. All right, so we're going to dive in. Just as usual, I will just say, if you feel like leaving a review about this podcast, I really appreciate that. If you want to join our mailing list, the Coaches Rising, we've got this huge global cohort of transformational coaches who are passionate about serving, doing deep work in the world. You can head to coachesrising.com and just put your name in the sign-up box that you'll find on the homepage there. You can also see our highly rated, highly loved online trainings there as well. So that's at coachesrising.com. All right, let's dive in. Here is the podcast with Dina Bell LaRoche. All right, so uh, it's really nice to be with you, uh, Dina. How are you doing today? In this moment, you know, I'm feeling, uh, I'm just feeling so grateful to be able to have this conversation with you. As I've shared with you, I, I, I enjoy uh, what the gifts that you're bringing to the world, to the world of coaching and, and others who listen to your beautiful podcast and feeling really privileged to, um, to be in a profession that's, that's supporting humans inside this really complex world that we're living in. So uh, excited about uh, playing in the field of thanatology with you, the study yeah. of grief and loss. Yeah. Right. Thanatology is the study of grief and loss. Yeah. Yeah. That's what we're going to talk about today, actually. I think um, I just said to you in the, the preamble, you know, I have a lot of people reaching out to be on the podcast. And uh, when I when I read your email, it's like, ah, oh, this is just um, such a, a worthy topic. You know, of course, of course, it always has been a worthy topic, grief and loss in, in, in coaching. And but um, it feels like perhaps collectively right now, um, there's something something even more pertinent about that. And um, 
I, so we're going to talk about that today. Uh, Grief Unleashed uh, is kind of like the name you've given to your work. And um, I wonder if you could just actually, in the beginning, share a little bit about how, how you came to be working with grief explicitly in, in coaching. And I know you've had a lot of experience in the, the field of sport as well. And um, you've written about the loss of your sister and, and stuff. And so maybe you could just um, give us a sense of like what your path into this work was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a, thanks for the invitation. It's really, um, it, it, it really disrupts, I think people when I, I, I share like why, why I was, I don't want to say forced into it, but I could not, I could no longer avert my gaze. And, and after wrestling, grappling with a life altering loss, it, uh, it became impossible for me to not start to do the hard work of mining my grief, attending to uh, the deep, deep sorrow that I experienced after the loss of my younger sister, Tracy. We were both moms, young moms. She was 29 when she died and I was 31 and we both had infants basically. And so while, and I write about this in my book, while, you know, we were preparing to uh, learn about ferberizing our baby and jumpsuits and color painting the, the, the walls of our baby rooms, no one quite prepared us to accompany, you know, my dying sister, my parents, their dying child, while we were learning about becoming mothers. And so um, what what awoke in me probably about uh, 10 years after I, I lost Tracy was this fire in my belly. And it was pretty much on parallel, parallel times when I was becoming an integral coach. I was just new. I was a baby coach, as Joanne used to say, one of our teachers. And, and in that excavation of, of my whole way of being, I could no longer avert the gaze of understanding this deep, deep pain that I was very good at compartmentalizing. And as you shared, Joel, I, I worked and still work in, in a domain where loss is to be avoided at all costs, right? High performance sport, sport, you have wins and you have losses. And we quickly realize that loss is a bad thing. And so I would say that's one thing. The other way I was holding this is I was rewarded for being stoic and brave and courageous, you know, raising money to honor my sister Tracy through the Relay for Life, which is a cancer-based research uh, fundraiser. And then, you know, through a school box in the second decade of my grief, where we, we built schools in Nicaragua and now closer to home on indigenous soil in Canada. So I would say, you know, I was rewarded for being the stoic, the brave, the courageous. And it took, you know, so much, um, so much work to get to that place where I was meeting my grief from a place of humility and grace. And when I did, I was able to start to do the hard work of unleashing my grief, which created all kinds of other gifts in my, in my life. And it felt so counterintuitive, you know, Mm. to actually go in and shine the spotlight where most dare not travel. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I'd love to talk to you about um, how you actually face your grief and how you helped others to do that. I think in, I'm curious first to to know what you think about, like if we could speak about grief in um in in a larger sense of how we relate to it in our culture and um, also um, in these times we're in. You know, we mentioned that again in our check in of like you know, um, these liminal times we're in where it feels like we're facing a lot of loss, mm-hmm. uh, feels like we're being invited to to kind of, um, I don't know if the word is level up or um, like own, uh, re, re kind of orient the way we relate to grief. I'm just curious if you could say like, um, what do you think of the importance of the role of, of uh, grief in our times and and like, how do you think we currently approach it? You know, like what's a, maybe a, there's, you have criticisms of that. Mm-hmm. I'm imagining so, yeah. Well, I would say I can only, you know, uh, meet my grief from my social location, right? So I'm, I feel uh, that's really important to honor in our work as, as a, a grief companion. I, I try and, and really honor my lived experience and how I hold grief. And so, so we understand grief is the natural and internal response to a severed attachment, which is a loss. So when we as coaches can understand that every time we're in the presence of a client, we're likely helping them come to terms with a belief that, that might start to... Um, feel like they're, we're shattering some of their assumptions and their beliefs. And so grief is that internal response to loss. If we can just meet grief from that place of simplicity, oh, it's natural, normal, healthy for us to feel and experience this inner rearranging of our whole worldview, depending on whether it's a macro life-altering grief. I call it the eat, pray, love moment right? Or if it's a micro loss, the tiny, the thousands of little losses that we accumulate over our lifespan. And so just even understanding grief from that space, right? So grief is my natural internal response to loss. And it's not just an emotion. I I have a blog that talks about, you know, some of the grief myths. And and, and one of them is, well, it's just an emotion. It's going to pass. You know, grief is, is more likened to childbirth. And so as someone who's birthed three children into this world, it is involuntary, right? It's an embodied experience. It changes our whole spiritual way of processing who am I in this world. It affects our interpersonal relationships and connections and it has a sense of re also reorganizing our sense of what is right and wrong, like our moral code. And so if we understand grief as being this reordering of our inner world, then we can do the hard work once acknowledging this of mourning and mourning is grief gone public. It's the many, many ways in which people commune together. We gather and we make meaning of a shared loss. And that's why we see people kind of join together in rituals like funerals or other ceremonial practices when there's been a public loss like, like the, the queen, where people felt that they had to do something and they felt connected to that shared loss, even though they didn't know her. So I think it's really important for us to just, and I, I try as a knowledge translator through grief and loss, 
decomplexify what is normal, natural, healthy, needed. And maybe an invitation and I'll pause Joel to see how you're, how some of this mm-hmm. literacy is, is meeting you. Consider grief as our greatest expression of love. The deeper our love, the greater the grief. And if we can understand that, then as coaches, we know that as we're accompanying other in their change agendas, if you're a performance coach or life agenda, if you're a life coach, I, as a grief companion, help journey through the wilderness of people's grief, meeting them where they're at. And most of my work is just helping them reconcile and come to terms with, oh, you mean this is normal? And in the normalization of the experience, people feel relieved, seen, heard, valued. You mean there's nothing wrong with me? And my response often is, um, you're grieving. Hmm. There's a lot in what you shared there. Um, um, Cause I, I guess like, I'll just pick it up um, with, with the order. You just said it last. So normalizing grief. Uh, I can imagine that that is like, we often have um, a change agenda to our grief or uh, we impose a certain set of, ideas upon um what we should be feeling how long it should last for um and so there's something about that normalization which feels alchemical or or you know it's it's a giving people a certain kind of space within which to be with their grief yeah okay so beautiful so you invited me a bit earlier to say and is there are are there criticisms that i had i have Mm -hmm. and i would offer again you know i i i am trying to catch up to what the literature what the world has known about loss for, you know, thousands of years. We live, you know, we're born, we live, we die. And somehow we've made, we, and and again, my social location residing in Canada and North America means that I have a personal and and an experiential way of holding grief and loss that's different than many of the other, you know, societies who I would say are probably more enlightened. They They don't have this attachment to an outcome the way we do, and they don't reward speed, which are two ways that I try and disrupt people when they're grieving. No attachment to outcome. There is no right way of grieving. There's your way, and there is no reward for speed. And it's a bit of, wait, what? So let's take one, I would say, criticism that I have, you know, in our North American ways of dealing with this. We tend to put some time post around grief and loss. And it might look something like this. In your HR policy manual, you'll give people three to five days. You lose a brat, you know, a grandmother, you might get a couple of days. You lose a sister. It wasn't written in the policy manual when I was there. You lose a child, you get five days. So uh, this year in preparation for the launch of my book, I was asking a funeral director uh, who's a dear friend of mine. Uh, you can imagine what our parties are like. <laughs> Our dinner parties. (laughs) I asked him, well, what do you do when you, your people, so he works in the funeral and the death trade, it's a billion dollar industry, right? When you, when I asked my dear friend about this, he, I said, what do you do for your own people when they suffer through loss? He's like, we, we let them know they can come back when they're ready. Hmm. So then I peeled away a little bit more and I said, well, how long is the average time? He's like a couple of weeks. And then sometimes they need a day here or there, but on average, because we tend to worry about those that are going to abuse the system. And we create all of these and codify all of these, you know, 
these policies in a what not to do. You know, the imagined scenario when someone you you care about it in a, as an employee, they're going to abuse the system. So what's really exciting for me is there's a, a, a world movement underfoot called um, Compassionate Companies. And in Canada, it's Canadian Compassionate Companies. And the call to action is to be more compassionate and to anticipate that people that work for you are going to suffer through loss. So can we invite them to be more compassionate in the way that plays out, much more like what my friend, the funeral director does so naturally, given his, his awakening there. So I think, you know, we, we need to reimagine the policies and the procedures that underpin this. That's one criticism. The other is really interesting. And this, you may be familiar with the DSM, and it has its at number five now. Um, which is basically a, a, the placeholder for all that ails us, you know, and, and what the, the helping professionals look to to support uh, those that are, that are uh, suffering through from, from mental and, and health illnesses. And what I would say is they just added uh, prolonged grief disorder, so PGD, as a pathology. And in there, they remark that if you've been grieving extensively for longer than six months for the children and over a year for the adults, then you may be at risk of PGD. And so the naming of grief as a disorder, I, I take issue with, and there's a lot of us in, in the helping profession who, who see this differently, who are deeply disturbed with equating grief as a disorder, because many of the symptoms of grief are very similar to depression. So are you having trouble eating, sleeping? You know, do you have disruptive thoughts? You know, are you, are you, um, uh, are you lethargic? You know, do you have uh, issues with respect to your, your life? And so all of these things that we would, we would see in someone who's in a depressed state, we now are very similar to someone who suffered through a loss. So including an in the DSM, I think brings some form of awareness, which is great. It can shape the helping professionals who many of them aren't trained in grief and loss, which is another thing that I found hard to understand. They understand the breakdown of the body, Joel, but they don't mm -hmm. understand what happens to the human inside the experience because they're not mandated to learn about grief and loss the way you and I are holding the conversation. And they're not also trained to deal with their own grief and loss, which is why we see helping professionals suffer, you know, through depression. So I think there's a, a modernization of our, our ways of being and how we hold our policies to catch up to more uh, contemporary ways of holding grief and loss. And, and likely that's going back in time to how we used to commune, how we used to have you know, recognition because we were so much closer in community that someone dear to us um, has died and we're going to help support, you know, the, the, the most, the most closest people to that person in a very, um, you know, in a, in a more heart centered way, we're not going to rush them through the experience. Uh, and so, yeah, there, there's maybe a lot there too, that you want to unpack. Mm. Well, one thing that I'm sat with is, uh, you know, is it feels like we're questioning right now a lot of these core aspects of being human um, and we're questioning the ways that we've held that, for example, in modernity, you know, and, and the modern life and the fact that, you know, you get 
five days off if your child dies. That just sounds insane in my mind. It's like, um, so, so like I was talking to somebody yesterday about race, racialization, the racialization of people, you know, it's something that's up. We're questioning that um, here. We're talking about grief. And, and so I'm just noticing on that level of, of um, you know, there's certain elements of our worldview are kind of being questioned very deeply and breaking down. And, um, and, and I think, for, and therefore like grief becomes even more important because there is a lot of things breaking down. There's a lot of loss happening right now, not just with individuals, but collectively. If we look at, um, you know, the pandemic we went through, um, we look at the struggles that are happening around the world in different places as we face these different crises like climate change and, um, you know, um, social change, financial disruption. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it feels like we're going to have to become much more um I don't know what the word would be, but like um, um, masterful or, or um, adept at working with grief. And I just want to kind of like also presence. It's like when I hear you talking about this, it's not just a loss of, of like uh, you said, like micro and macro grief. It's like there's not just we're not just talking about the loss of a loved one, but I hear you talking about all kinds of loss. And I know myself that. I've kind of gotten a renewed appreciation for this in coaching that we do. Yeah. So, so, you know, we may uh, end up coaching people who have lost somebody. Um, It might even become that we, that we have to become adept at at grief being part of our coaching because of this systemic loss, but also um, I, you know, transformation includes loss. And I think sometimes I'll speak personally. I, I um, gave that short change, you know, I was kind of like a slight, slight bravado around, okay, we're going to transform, you know, I'm going to transform, you're going to transform. But actually that can be quite devastating sometimes. Not, not always, but um, so, so yeah, we're talking about loss on this micro level as well. And um, I guess then my question is like, what is my question? I've said all that, like may, maybe the question is then um, how, how do you invite people to work with grief uh, in a in a different way than perhaps we're used to? And um, you know, how does are there like are there any like core principles that would play out that are the same if yeah you lost somebody you loved or yeah no it's like a more micro loss that maybe is part of a belief identity transformation going on. Uh, would you work differently in those different ways or are there like core principles that kind of span, span those that are yeah, part of our toolkit or something? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Beautiful. It's, um, it's really lovely to see you kind of going, Oh, wow. Like, ding, 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 ding. <laughs> cause it isn't something we usually talk about. Right. We don't usually talk about, Hey, Joel, you know, tell me more about this thing that you're experiencing and we wouldn't name it as grief. We would talk about our discomfort, frustrations, maybe even anger if we're feeling brave. And, and there's a beautiful book here, the language of emotions um, by, uh, by Carla McLaren, who, who describes the range of emotions Mm. and how we tend to assign, well, good emotions are what we need to have more of and bad emotions are what we need to avoid. And yet we know that when we cap our capacity to express and experience and meet emotions that are darker, 
right? What we would call darker, like grief and the shadow work, so to speak. What my own lived experience is, is the more I spent time excavating my lived experience of grief, the more I was able to feel joy, like really feel joy to the point where I was like stopped in my tracks and fallen to my knees in my woods because I just couldn't not feel it in that moment, right? Yeah, I see you feeling that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, you know, back to maybe some grief literacy 101, shall we, for the people that are listening, because that's what I love to do. I love to give people like really tangible things, especially the coaches who are listening, tangible things that they can grab onto. So um, the first thing that you spoke to is there's finite losses, and those would be death-related losses related to, you know, the death of people that we, we, we love or care about, or even when there's complicated relationships, that too is a really interesting uh, topic. And then I would say is, you know, the non-finite losses. So when we think of identity and, and maybe relationships and, and people displaced, you know, who are, are leaving a land and family and traditions and, and moving halfway around the world because they're forced out of their, their country. So thinking about the finite and non-finite losses helps us prepare for what you were sharing. It's not just all the death of people that we love or care about or have relationships with. It's also all those many losses that we accumulate through our lifespan, which can also include losses related to life experience. Hmm. So I'm working with, um, for instance, I'm working with someone who's newly retired. And I said to them, let's retire the word retire. We retire horses to pasture. Maybe we call it renewalment. And they love that. They loved being able to play in that space. So they're feeling so much anguish. And the word that came was anguish. Because even though they self-determined, they had agency, they had choice and voice in being able to leave a career that meant everything to them and they were ready for something new. They didn't anticipate how much of their lived identity, the routine, the traditions, the circle of, of connection, you know, how much all of that was wrapped up in their way of being. And so helping them meet this new moment required a whole bunch of acknowledgement of the attachments. And this is where Bowlby's work, right, comes into play. John Bowlby, who helps us understand the connection to attachment, which is why when a baby's born, the first thing we do is we put them on their mother's breath, right? Mm. And so attachment is something that is needed and required for us to live as whole human beings. But we don't teach people that. And so as coaches, if we can understand that our clients are attached to beliefs and practices and routines and, and ways of thinking patterns of showing up in the world. And we can further understand that when they're longing, you know, they listen to that whisper of the future and they, they kind of lean in and go, Oh, I want to go there, but that means I have to leave here, but here is comfortable and known. And now, now what do I do? So they, then they move into liminal space. Well, as a coach, a first principle is, You cannot journey with anyone if you yourself dare not go. So if you don't have the courage and the capacity to explore your own grief, your own attachments, it's going to be really hard for you to meet that moment when others are struggling, grappling with with these, uh, these kind of like 
hidden beliefs that are keeping them stuck in their known way of being, which is why people revert back, right? In change initiatives, or I don't know what other language in integral, we talk about our current way of being and our new way of being. And, and if we, if we don't acknowledge the attachment we have to our current way of being, it's really hard to, to move into that new way of being with sustainable, you know, sustainable, so that would be the, the first principle. The second one is to acknowledge the loss. Mm. So what is this loss? And being able to ask clients. So it sounds like, it sounds like you might be, might be grieving, might be grieving this relationship that you had with. And, and as I say that, Joel, people's eyes often start to tear up using the right language to be able to describe an internal experience allows people to feel met in that moment. And it's like a whole undoing and they soften, like I'm getting goosebumps now, they soften in their experience. So the acknowledgement of the loss is critical in, in bereavement literature. We, we can't move through our experience and move into mourning unless we acknowledge the loss. So there's a, a second principle. And then as we start moving through the experience of loss, it's, it's reordering, you know, reimagining all of the ways we want to show up as a human being, right? So what does it mean for me as, as a, a bereaved uh, sister? Do I still call myself a sister? Mm-hmm. Am I still a big sister if Tracy died, right? And so being able to acknowledge the reordering you know, what, what the literature speaks to the toggling between the grief work I need to do and then the life work. So as we dance between, you know, the, the grief work and the, and, the, and the life work, we're going to acknowledge that we need to reorder our life work just as we're trying to understand the grief work. The challenge is that our society, again, the society I grew up with, didn't give me the tools, didn't normalize my experience as a brief sister. In fact, and see if this feels true for, for those that are listening, did you feel disenfranchised in your grief? And what the literature speaks to is that children and often siblings, right, members of the LGBTQ2 plus communities, those have been traumatized. Gabor Mate would say the addict, you know, those who are, are homeless those people are disenfranchised in their grief experience. And so when you're disenfranchised, you're not seen. You are invisible to the experience. And if you're a child, as my nephew was when my sister died, he was 13 months old. And 13 months old are in the sensory motor, right? The Piaget, mm-hmm. zero to two. In that way of being, people said, well, he's too young. He'll never even know. He'll never even know that Tracy existed. He won't grieve or how can he grieve what he did not know? Well, can you imagine, you know, 15 years later, I'm back at grief school, right? At university, taking these thanatology courses, stumbling onto children and adolescent loss and understanding children's development as they work through their stages of development and understanding the attachments that they form from the moment they're born. So feeling so vindicated in in seeing that when Liam, my nephew, you know, he, he experienced all kinds of tummy problems after Tracy died mm-hmm. and, and seeing how the literature said, of course, cause he was pre-verbal. So his body 
was aching for Tracy. So if we had known that, we would have swaddled her in his clothes. We would have, you know, uh, played music. We would have done the things that he had been benefiting from with Tracy for 13 months of his life, but we didn't know. And so conventional wisdom was, well, he's for, how, how is he, he's only 13 months. So the forgotten ones, right. Is what I'm speaking to here. And so you can imagine that another principle is, you know, meeting people like meeting people in their grief experience. And often the simplest thing we can say is tell me their name. What is it that you miss most about this person or somebody, as I was sharing the story of my client, what is it that you miss most about your, I work with a lot of athletes, right? So when I work with athletes, these athletes are Olympians, Paralympians, right? Professional athletes. And so in their developmental ages, all they knew is the micro, the micro world of sport. And when they leave, they're often, you know, young adults. And their whole known way of being was shaped through sport. So when I ask them a question like, so tell me what you miss most about your time as a world-level athlete, it, it usually gets stuck because people don't want to ask them those kinds of questions. But you can't process, if you don't process your grief, you can't start the hard work of mourning. And there are no rituals in sport or very few rituals outside of the death of someone where we might start to do some work around mourning together and collectively mm -hmm. for these other life losses that you spoke to. Uh, yeah. I'm really touched by you, by what you share, you know, um, no criticism of um, who was around when your nephew went through that, but it's heartbreaking to think that people, you know, that he wasn't seen in that way, you know, um, and so like the educational part of this is, seems really important, you know, like, yeah, that, that these um, people can be honored and dignified in their mourning, even when they're, even when they're a baby. Um, and so, yeah, like what there's, there's different things here. Like, so um, processing, like you said, processing is important. And so do you feel then that part of the work of grieving is to, help people to begin to feel that sense of loss in their bodies and to, to kind of have it be okay that it's there, you know, and, and not to try to get away from it or even maybe honor that they're trying to get away from it and help them to be in relationship with their relationship to that sense of grief in their body in a way that then it can become metabolized. Like, is that, is that an important part of the process? Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, my lineage, you know, I, I is, is through sport. So I, I have maybe not a, a more natural relationship with embodied practices, because I grew up in sport, all of my professional career has been in sport. So my relationship to the body and going into the body is, uh, was always a natural kind of experience for me. What I would offer is it isn't natural for a lot of people. So when, when, and we may, we may play together, Joel, we'll see, but when with clients, I might, I always ask for permission. So when I'm working with the athletes, for instance, let's go there and, and saying, well, describe to me what you're experiencing right now in this moment. And they'll, they'll describe, you know, things that are external to them. 
at the gross level, right? So they'll speak about, well, I think this and I think that. And then I, I might say, well, how are you feeling? And then they may say, well, I'm feeling frustrated and, and angry and, and, and sad. Okay, so, so where are you feeling that in your body? And then there's like a slowing down. And not all of them, is, I would say, many of the athletes I've, I've supported, very few are used to that question. So it's like teaching them a new way of relating to their body that's been very transactional. And again, you know, I would say that that, that transactional nature of how we are together, how are you feeling? And people will come back with a, well, I think this, or I think that, or I'm okay. So can we go a bit deeper? And in the accompanying of someone at a deeper level, it's always permission granting. So is it okay with you? You know, if it's okay with you, where are you feeling that in your body? And then they, they often will talk about, you know, their solar plexus, their gut, their throat. And so the muting you know, the suppressing of the, the tears and the emotion that I know so well, feeling like a caged bird in my, in, my, in my grief. And so the unleashing of our grief, which feels kind of counterintuitive, why are we unleashing that which, you know, should be contained? That's, it, it needs to be metabolized to extract the nutrients, to be able to tell our bodies, you're safe here. And it's okay to feel it's okay to feel the pain because of course you feel the pain because you've got that severed attachment. And often I'll bring like a popsicle stick where I'll, I'll break it and I'll, I'll ask people, well, what would be the natural experience if you had a bone and you broke it? Ouch. And so the refusing of the bone takes time. And that's where, you know, at some point you and I might talk about continuing bonds and how we can help to reattach, right? Our relationship with those we've lost, who've died, or relationship with the parts of me that I've disavowed. And, and how do I integrate? You know, you and I would know that. How do I help integrate from, from an old way of being into my new way of being? But first, I, I have to disassociate, unattach. And that's hard because now I'm in liminal space, as you said so beautifully. So it, there's a lot for us to understand and appreciate. And just, you know, as a coach, Often I do my grief work. People come to me often not as a grief coach, right? They're coming to me with big change agendas and world issues and people issues, right? And strategy issues. And, and often we get to a place of human to human exploring the parts of their soul that feels unattended, unacknowledged, and, and the losses they've accumulated if they've had to fire people through the pandemic, you know, all of the things that they as leaders have had to accumulate. So meeting that moment and equipping them with some loss literacy is a game changer because you can't be anywhere else, but in your body, you cannot outrun your grief when you're having that level of conversation. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I can actually feel in our conversation um a, a kind of um a transmission of grief in a sense um it's not quite uh that easy for me to put words to it but um it's like um but it's a beautiful feeling it's like a, a beautiful feeling of of like um um a sensual sensual kind of intimacy and um op open-heartedness 
and even perhaps broken heartedness, but, but with a, um, but with a sense of like, um, um, joy, joy almost, or like just, uh, be, being deeply human. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just wanted to reflect that as like, um, it's interesting. We're talking about grief and, and maybe, maybe that's because it's tuning me into my own sense of grief, or maybe, um, maybe because you've been doing this work and you're kind of like, you know, you're in the logos of the teaching and there's a transmission of it from you, but I just wanted to name that, uh, yeah, it's really actually quite beautiful. So, yeah, I want to. Can I read something to you? Yeah, please. Yeah. So I have permission from uh, Terry Tempest Williams, who's a naturalist and a researcher and and a poet, and she was uh, speaking to Krista Tippett from uh, Sounds True about uh, finding beauty in a broken world, which is one of her books and. And I just want to read this passage because there's something I never know which poem or which statement I'll share, but there is something about what you just shared, which actually connected me back to her words. So she says, she's in an interview with, with uh, Krista Tippett and she says, she's recounting this story she had with a good friend. Okay. And so she says, you know, a good friend of mine said, Terry, you are married to sorrow. And I looked at him and I said, I'm not married to sorrow. I just choose to not look away. And I think there's deep beauty in not averting our gaze. No matter how hard it is, no matter how heartbreaking it can be. I think it's about presence. (laughs) About bearing witness. I used to think bearing witness was a passive act. And I don't believe that to be true anymore. I think that when we are present... When we do bear witness, when we don't divert our gaze, something is revealed, the very marrow of life. We change, a transformation occurs, and our consciousness shifts. Yeah, that's, that's stunning. And um, interestingly, um, it so beautifully speaks into... Um, something that was on my mind, which is um, this necessity to, to turn and face our, our sorrow, uh, our grief. Um, Tom Murray and Spring Cheng were on the podcast uh, a while back. They were talking about the um, necessity to descend in a, in a way that, especially, you know, you're trained as an integral coach and I'm a big fan of development and, integral coaching itself and um there can often be this like ascending bias um you know development let's develop let's keep developing and um tom spoke in that conversation about well yeah but we don't often uh, we we have this like notion of transcend and include but actually sometimes it's and often it's transcend and exclude you know there's actually loss taking place and Spring was also saying, yeah, and, and actually there's kind of, there's something in this um, kind of uh, this place of this, when we descend, you know, and into this kind of almost like womb-like or formless-like place, that's where a lot of um, healing can take place. Uh, perhaps it's a place where there's grieving and, and we're, we're facing our loss and, and that the development can emerge out of that place, you know, from a more, from a kind of, a deeper sense of wholeness rather than just building the development on top. And 
there's something that, about what you read which kind of encapsulates what I'm saying much more kind of succinctly and poetically. Um, I think I think it's really beautiful. I don't know if that what I just shared fits with you at all. Yeah, it is beautiful, and I I love because I was listening to that podcast when I was in my healing woods. They converted from my crying woods early on in my my early on in my my stages of grief, I, and I don't want to call them stages. We'll we'll get to that, I'm sure. Um, but as I was listening to that podcast, I was thinking exactly of the mining, right? The work, the hidden, the quiet, the stillness, the often lonely um, aspects of our of our work when we we choose when we choose to be with our grief. And when we do that work, it is, it's like softer and quieter and gentler and, and, and really it's lonely work. It needs to be lonely because my relationship with the person who died or my relationship with those attachments that are now lost is unique to me. And your attachment is different. Even if we're in a family ecosystem, you can understand the complexities then And when I work with families, for instance, and or groups that are mourning a collective loss, I've worked with athletes where another athlete died by suicide, right? So trying to understand the me in the we in the all of us is complicated work. What makes it complex is that we we, um, superimpose these, these ideals and these ways of being that I should be doing this and I should be doing that. So deconstructing that is actually really simple. We just invite people to trust and we give them permission to grieve fully in their own human expression. And we also help them support each other through these tenets of companionship, right? Everyone can be a companion, which is why I launched Grief Unleashed is to teach people how to be companions. And my dream is to work with coaches to teach the coaches how to accompany someone, not as a guide, like I'm going to guide your way through this maze and walk you through these stages of grieving? No, not at all, right? It's it's more akin to being a companion shoulder to shoulder. You teach me, you can lean on me. We're going to be through this, this journey of discovery together. And I trust that you know what you need. And I might just ask you a powerful question or sit with you or breathe together. And usually in movement, when I was listening to one of your other podcast specialists, Snowden, I think, talked about being in movement. That's why he brings his people on a virtual walk with him. I do the same thing, especially when I'm supporting people who are uh, grieving, Joel. So, you know, I don't know if you'd be willing to play. And again, it's by invitation. But I think that if you'd like to, I know I would, I feels like right now it would be so helpful Um maybe to your listeners, if we, if we did a bit of, um, if we had a journey together, if there is something, mm. you know, a topic that you might like to explore and, and permission to say no permission to, you know, come out of the journey anytime. It just, it feels like it will give, it will ground your listeners into something a little bit more. Oh, I, I could do this. Cause it's, mm. <laughs> that's the myth. There is no, there is no, you know, I'm back at school, yes, doing all of this, but honestly, it's showing up fully human and listening and being really intentional about your own relationship with grief and loss. That that's that's the work. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah, I would be uh definitely up for that. 
Um, and I could share the thing that's most alive for me now. Mm-hmm. If you want to, what would be the right way just to speak about what yeah. it is that's here? Yeah. Um, you know, the thing that's actually most alive for me is the, um, we checked in about this a little bit beforehand. You were really gracious in asking me, would, you know, would it be cool to play? And um, this is like the, 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 the grief, it's the, it's the future grieving, like, but it's, but it's here now for me. It's like um, um, the, you know, as I, as I explore uh, what, what is playing out in the world, you know, these different perspectives on uh, and the exponential risk that we face collectively, these different crises uh, that, that are, are here um, that, you know, just cannot be tackled uh, individually one by one. There's just not enough time for that. And um, the, the likelihood that we'll go, and I, of course no one can predict the future, but the likelihood that we'll go through some pretty, shocking um loss and and transitions in in the coming years um is something that that i feel grief around yeah Mm -hmm. absolutely and in particular um with my daughter you know who's three years old and um you know just seeing seeing the innocent joy in her face uh and the way she relates to the world and um you know, and then and wondering like how, what kind of world will she grow up in? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's hard to reconcile. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, what's your daughter's name? Esme. Esme. Yeah. Yeah. And thanks for bringing Esme as a as a teacher. There's something about children who they they know how to grieve. Yeah. They know how to experience joy. So as you as you uh, as you witness, you know, and notice your own way of holding the uncertainty of the future, and I, I'm curious, like, what is it about this topic that's so important to you? It's a good question. Um, yeah, you know, there's there's different there's different elements of that. Like, one is uh, being a father. You know, um, um, being a father and uh, protecting my daughter, uh, having her feel safe in the world. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, it's not it's not like I expect that I will keep her safe. It's not that. But, um, you know, it, it is a sense of responsibility for her well-being that I feel. And then there's also my own, you know, um, like the, the, the dreams, and, and I, this is where I feel lost. It's like the dreams uh, I had for my future um, are being tempered, you know? And um, yeah, I'm, I'm wondering like, what would, will I have a future like that? I think there's a sense of um, letting go, letting go of that. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, and just in general, like tuning into, um, uh, us as a collective and the non-human species in the world and the violence and the um you know there's an, an incredible amount of beauty and um creativity in the world too but yeah it's sometimes just feeling this collective um what feels like insanity you know um is uh i feel a lot of grief around that 
Mm -hmm. Um, So there's different levels of it. Yeah. Beautiful. I can, I can feel that. And um, Francis Weller has written an exquisite book, the wild edge of sorrow. Mm. And he speaks to grief as gates of grief. See if, Mm. see if this actually allows you to kind of excavate and maybe mine some of your grief at different levels. There's um, my grief and then there's our grief Mm. as a family. And then there's the world grief. Mm. There's the shattered grief around these dreams that I had that may no longer come to pass. That's the spiritual part. And then there's like the world grief at the abuse that we're inflicting on our beautiful planet Mm. yeah yeah i can see you feeling that and yeah so as you as you may be like welcome it's like oh so how how does it even feel to be able to acknowledge and find language to describe what you may have been holding as a whole and now meeting from maybe a a more tender a, a more tender place yeah, there's, there's, um, so there's an, there's a, there's an incredible kind of like aliveness in my, uh, my heart or my chest, you know, the center of my chest. Uh, but it's, but it's very tender too. So it's like a tenderized, mm. um, aliveness. And, um, it's quite beautiful to feel, but it's also tender to feel it. And I can also feel it kind of like, so, pouring down into my solar plexus and but there's but I also notice there's like um, a tightness in my throat and there's a tightness in my shoulders mm-hmm. uh, like yeah like a holding or something yeah okay beautiful so if you're comfortable mm-hmm. one of the ways we can communicate to our body that we're safe here is through breath mm-hmm. and through touch and through movement. So even just putting your hands, you know, warming up your hands a little bit Mm. by rubbing them together and then placing them near your, near your throat in a way that feels safe for you. And just maybe massaging it a little bit with some, some deep breath work. Yeah. It, it, it communicates like, Hey, it's okay. Like you need to be expressed this sadness, this sorrow, this grief that you might be experiencing and that your body is experiencing and holding needs to find a way to dissolve and dissipate. And it will do so when it feels met. Yeah, I can already feel it sort of softening it's just um it's just really appreciating the touch Mm -hmm. and i can feel how that like my voice feels like it's changing as well yeah and you know joel thank you for sharing that you know esme i want to really make this real for you she ever had a little tantrum at the age of three she might have had one or two already (laughs) never 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 never. yeah (laughs) so in those moments Right. What is the, what are some of the ways in which you bring comfort to her when she's 
you know, having this, this moment of grief or outburst or anger, frustration, what is it that you do for her? Yeah. Um, well, when I, sometimes I can't, but, but most of the time I'm able to, um, to kind of hold space for her and be there for her, uh, without, um, without kind of trying to make her wrong. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, like it's being attuned to like, what's the right level of contact that she's wanting right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and what, where is it coming from in me? You know, am I trying to calm her down because I don't want her to be upset or, um, or, or, you know, am I just holding space for her to be where she is? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So our, our children know how to teach us to support them when they're having these moments. Right. And if we, if we can allow, they can be our guides for how we can self soothe and offer comfort to, to others in a way that always, always ask for permission and always trust that they know what they need. Mm. Our bodies are such wise, wise vessels of meaning and, and if we get out of our own way, you know, the work of grief is soul work. Mm. It really isn't head work. But if we don't have the literacy to be able to meet these moments when our hearts are breaking open, and if we can't do it when it's the most obvious of moments, like someone you love has died, and the rest of us are awkward and bumbling and don't speak their name because we're afraid of what? Causing more pain? In fact, the reverse happens, right? When I don't witness your pain, when I don't stand shoulder to shoulder with you, when I don't give you the space to uh, feel acknowledged, it is such a lost opportunity for us to be human together. And it requires this quality of presence that Terry Tippett uh, speaks to, right? Terry Tempest Williams speaks to. It, it's, it's just, it's staying in. It's staying in the experience the way we might with our children. That's why I keep coming back to the children as our guides. They know how to be with experience of pain, of joy, of loss, of anger, of frustration. And if we can, we can be more like them. Mm. There's a, a, a deeper attunement to love right now as well. So uh, I think you said that earlier, like grief is an expression of love. And um, uh, there, there is something about, yeah, children um, have this amazing range of expression and, and freedom of expression. And uh, perhaps it gets narrowed as we become older if we don't do this kind of work, basically. Yeah. Um, yeah. But there's, some, there's something about like what you say about this grief as an expression of love and, and, and soul work as well, which um speaks to me uh, maybe you could say a bit more about that because i think um you know that there is something soul making about our times perhaps you know um perhaps in these moments where where there is incredible amounts of loss there are there there are soul making times you know like it, because i'll just share personally um that that's what's coming out of me too is um um is i'm finding a deeper sense of kind of 
freedom of expression and joy as well, like a, a feeling of joy, the joy of life, of being alive mm-hmm. through through um, through meeting this grief and um, and and also like seems to kind of cut away. It's like has a it has a kind of cleansing or cutting kind of element to it. Like it's it's a it is clearing that space for the new to come in. Mm-hmm. I was uh, I was just you were inspired me. David White is who I've been studying under me and thirty thousand of his friends <laughs> since the pandemic. Um, but he sent me, he gave me permission to use his poem, The Well of Grief, in, in my book, which I'm just so touched with. And it, it, there's a few beautiful things that you said. So one is David speaks about the well of grief, right? And it's interesting that we're converging around going inside, right? So stages of development, yes. And maybe there's something about going inside of me, trusting that I am enough, trusting that I'm complete enough, trusting that I'm supposed to be experienced, what it means to be human. And when we're fully human, we're going to absorb and experience loss. It's impossible not to. And that's the the gift of being human is to form these bonds, these attachments, this deep, deep love, and then also be with be with loss, the loss of the people we love most in the world, including, you know, our own ways of being as we, as we develop and grow and maybe undo a little bit more. So there's this invitation about going into the well. And then David, you know, speaks in his poem of finding the small round coins that were tossed, you know, by others who, who had a longing for something more right? And so do we have the courage is what you're inspiring me with the courage to actually pause and go deep. It's the lonely path. I don't have to feel so isolated. And that's the work of grief unleashed is to say, Hey, human, you have to do this work. I can't travel the path for you. I can't accompany you. If I myself am not doing my own work of going deep, there's no reward system for this work. And maybe that's what you're helping me see, Joel, in this moment is for the most part over the last 21 years, all of this work has been soul work and mm-hmm. not rewarded. And yet the quality of joy, the quality of presence, the, the small little tiny moments of being present to my three children and my, my husband of, you know, 34 years now, it's like that it, the quality of life, right. has been my, my biggest reward. So thank you for that gift. You've kind of reaffirmed why I do this work. And so if the word soul, you brought it up a few times now, I would be inviting you, you know, if I was your grief coach or companion to be saying, well, what is it about soul work? That's igniting you. What is it about soul work that you want to unleash as you bear witness and bring some of this attention to what's hard for you, what what you're grieving, so that you can experience the both and of that of that continuum. Mm. And tomorrow is promised to no one. So get busy living the life now because tomorrow is promised to no one. And yesterday can inform how I show up in this moment, right? When my throat constricts and I'm feeling 
I'm feeling grief, then, then meet the grief. This is my invitation to people. Not tomorrow or next year or when I have time. Now. And then see what happens. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm kind of feeling the... Uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful exploration and topic for me because it, it, it... And it's interesting how I'm like, oh, yeah, we've been doing a podcast on... Uh, coaching and transformation for you know three years and actually we've never spoken about loss and grief and uh, that's kind of crazy so I'm, I'm you know because because as we talk about it it's how central it is to life as a human being but also to to any kind of coaching work and um you know we, as we come towards the end of our time I'm just wondering like if, there, if there's anything we haven't spoken about yet that you think is important one of the things um uh we we did talk you mentioned continuing bonds and i'm also curious a little bit about um like grief rituals as well that seems to be significant you've talked about partnerships and can community is there anything from those that you think would be important for us to touch into for a bit yeah beautiful i think it's a beautiful place to end yeah so um so the research is really, it's, it's, it's exquisite, right? When you start thinking about this language of continued bonds. So remember that bone I was telling you that had broken and then over time it starts to reattach itself, which is why the doctors, you know, put you in a cast and give you time to heal. And, and so continued bonds, if you nourish this beautiful invitation to form a new attachment with the person you loved who's died or the me that was that I let go of or the relationship with things that have now dissolved. The literature speaks about attending to those relationships, right? Those identities in such an honoring way that feels natural and a little bit like, how is it possible that we have not just naturalized this? What I found, and even though I was encouraged to keep maybe doing some of the things I did to honor Tracy, um, that the relationship that we had with her was forged through those events that we did, right? And that's where, as coaches, we can get, we can be really helpful to people by acknowledging what's your coping style. And there's adaptive practices, healthy practices, and then there's maladaptive practices. And that might be for a part two conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, but back to continuing bonds. It is, mm-hmm. it is such a beautiful theory of why is it that I need to get over this person, move on from the relationship as if they didn't matter. It's a false illusion. And I would offer it's an illusion, a spell we've been under so that we keep working and producing and consuming. Because mm-hmm. if, we're, if we're actually spending the time mourning the person we loved, the experience of grief, we might be less productive, less, mm-hmm. less focused on producing and consuming external things to fill the giant hole in my heart. So if you allow that to be true, continuing bonds is, is at its simplest as an invitation to reform a relationship with those who've died or experiences that are now before us, right behind us. And, and it, it is served through rituals. So this is the blending of, of your two beautiful questions. 
And the rituals are often practices that we know in our bodies, right? That we've inherited through the centuries around uh, funerals, the, the death anniversary. So in my book, I, I use the, the language of death anniversary. We have anniversaries. Why don't we have death anniversaries? Mm. And rituals around, um, you know, lighting candles and, and, you know, a picture of someone, the offering or a blessing. Uh, for, for Tracy, we did, you know, we did a lot more, right? We, we built classrooms in her honor and to support what she couldn't do, which is bring hope to children, which was her, her greatest, uh, her greatest hope. So, so I would offer that, you know, these rituals of maintaining a bond is healthy, is normal, is needed. And for some people, they may not need to make it big, they may not need to amplify. Um, For others, it might be something small, like lighting a candle on you know, the, the anniversary of their loved one's death, or it could be, you know, wearing clothing, or it could be, you know, walking in the woods. My mom and I have a, a grief practice where on Tracy's death anniversary, we always connect for coffee. So there's lots of different ways we can do it for Thanksgiving with my father who, who recently passed, you know, five weeks ago now, Joel, as I shared with you, we, we have little name cards, place settings for our Thanksgiving dinner. And we, we incorporated my dad, like his place setting, his little card was with us at the center of the table. And, and we, we honored him, you know? Mm-hmm. So the little tiny micro practices of gratitude that allows the person to still imprint on you, to still inform. It's very similar to the, the one of your podcasts you had, his name escapes me, but he had a beautiful way of talking about the mystical and the magical and those practices that we can import and the learnings, the teachings from our ancestors. Well, if we don't speak their name, if we don't invite them into the conversation, if we don't keep these rituals alive that, that keep those attachments alive in a, in a beautiful way, then how are we going to learn from the wisdom of the past? So I, I would, I would just offer, you know, maybe as a way of closing speak their name, invite people. Hey, do you want to tell me more about, about the person that, that you loved who has died? Or are you comfortable, you know, sharing a story or, um, oh, it sounds like you, it sounds like you're grieving. Like I'm here. I'm happy to listen. And, and then the, the final little, you know, if I can, um, offer is please don't, please don't offer platitudes or, and these are the two words you should never use. And I'm using the word should. Please don't use the word at least. So for instance, at least you have two other children. Or at least your dad's not suffering anymore. Mm-hmm. Or at least, you know, at least Tracy had 29 years on this planet. So the at leasting is in service of us as witnesses of your pain. And if we can learn to not make the other person's pain about us and just bear witness of it and then offer this safe refuge to be companions to each other, at some point, someone's going to need to companion you. That is guaranteed. So my, my big vision, my big soul work is to invite more people to become grief companions so that we can all support each other um, to your earlier point, we're going to need it. We need it now. 
and there's not enough doctors and therapists and psychotherapists, you know, to, to be able to fix this thing that actually isn't rooted in pathology to begin with, right? That maybe is the big, the biggest myth. So yeah, an invitation for people to, to hone their companioning muscles. Mm. Yeah. Uh, a beautiful invitation and um yeah dina i think this is a good place to bring it to a close and um just to thank you for uh to uh, the conversation today you know like i said you know i felt this beautiful uh felt sense of um the potency and importance of grief uh in and being human and in coaching itself and uh so it speaks to me of the work you've done and uh that you're you know, we talk about soul for me, like soul, uh, that's one of the signs of soul is when there's a transmission of the, mm-hmm. of the, the gift into the world. And I feel that. So, so thanks so much. And I do want to ask like, where we can find out more about your work as well. People want to check you out. And I think you, you said you might be offering trainings for coaches and stuff. So. Yeah. Well, yeah. thank you for that. Um, so griefunleashed.ca. Mm-hmm. And then I have a book coming out. Uh, just doing all the fun stuff now, the layouts and the with the publisher that's coming out early next year, uh, if all goes well. And um, I love I love having these conversations with people, Joel. So if anybody wants to reach out to me, there's a contact uh, page on on my website at uh, griefunleashed.ca. Uh, just a, a heads up again: if you're not on our mailing list and you want to stay in the loop about other things we create, then head to coachesrising.com, put your name in the sign-up box there. You'll also find some of our other offerings, our online trainings for coaches there. And just want to end by wishing you well, and I'll see you again next time. Mm-hmm.